0: Hello, everyone, this is Asher Yosefa of Shuvu coming to you from Jerusalem on a rather interesting day here in Israel. Uh, if any of you have been watching the media you know that things have uh, gotten a little interesting in the last 24 hours with Hezbollah's attack on Israel yesterday and Israel's response. This afternoon, seven Katusha missiles hit our holy city of Svat, injuring 20 hitting a college, a bus stop, an absorption center for new immigrants, even hitting a bomb shelter. Missiles hit nah- Nahariya this morning, killing one woman, injuring 29. 200,000 of our elderly and infirmed have been evacuated from towns and communities in northern Israel, and Hezbollah is now threatening to strike Haifa. The country is on a level three alert, which is one level under a state of emergency, And it's the 17th of Tammuz, the fast of Tammuz. Jews fast from sunrise to sundown on the 17th of Tammuz in remembrance of two significant tragedies in our history that occurred on this date. First, it was on the 17th of Tammuz that Moshe broke the first set of stone tablets inscribed by the hand of Hashem with the Eser Librot, the Ten Words, commonly known as the Ten Commandments. On the 17th of Tammuz, in 70 CE, the walls of Jerusalem were breached by the Romans, and for the first time since the Hashmonians, the sacrifices at the temple were stopped. The fighting in the temple area was too fierce to continue the daily Korbanot. Three weeks later, on Tisha B'Av, the Beit HaMikdash, the holy temple, was destroyed. So it is that the sages came to declare the 17th of Tammuz a minor fast when Jews refrain from food and drink from sunrise to sundown. Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur are the two major fast days when Jews fast and mourn from sundown to sundown. Thankfully, the prophet Zechariah foretells a time when the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh month, and the fast of the tenth month shall become occasions for joy and gladness, happy festivals for the house of Judah but you must love honesty and integrity. Zechariah 8.19 These are the fasts of the 17th of Tammuz, Tisha B'Av, Yom Kippur, and the fast of Gedalia, respectively. May we soon merit to see the fulfillment of this prophecy and the Beit Macdash standing atop Har HaBait. It's also interesting to note that the journey of the spies sent in to scud out the land of Canaan took place during the entire month of Tammuz and up until Tisha B'av when they returned to bring their bad report, all with the exception of Yoshua and Caleb, of course. Tammuz is a very intense month when it comes to spiritual energy. There's a lot of din, a lot of judgment in, in the spiritual realms during this month. To illustrate this, I would like to quote a couple of paragraphs from a teaching on Tammuz by Rabbi Avraham Aryeh Trubman of Orchadash and Moshev Mevomode'in. Rabbi Trubman writes, The great paradox of these months of Tammuz and Av, and the deeper teaching they hold for us, is that both fast days were meant for great joy and accomplishment. The 17th of Tammuz, Moshe was meant to descend with the two tablets of law and begin the process of fixing the world. Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsberg teaches that the seven, that 17 is the numerical value of the word tov, good, and the 17th of Tammuz was the 40th day after receiving the Torah at Sinai, and it was intended to be the culmination of all goodness, the ultimate purpose of creation. The return of the spies after 40 days was to have been the beginning of the Jews preparing to enter the land of Israel from where they would fulfill the mission to be a light unto the nations. The potential of both days was squandered, and now it is left for us to restore these months to their original purpose by making the rectifications needed. We are taught that the Messiah is born on Tisha B'Av, and that redemption will come out of exile, light out of darkness, joy out of sorrow. We must take current events and our own personal trials and see the deeper messages we are being sent. By attuning our inner eye to the unity and oneness of God and our inner ear to His constant messages to each one of us, we will know how to contribute what we can to creating a better world, one day at a time. There is no more important or urgent task. End of quote. Rabbi Trugman's article, entitled The 17th of Tammuz, is available on the articles section of the Shuvu website at www.shuvoo.com and later today, or actually I guess earlier today, um, we just posted an article by Rabbi Truglin on the three weeks in which he discusses the spiritual significance of the next three weeks between today and Tisha B'Av. Now let us turn our attention to Yeroboam ben Nevat of the tribe of Ephraim. We are going to spend some time reviewing Biblical history in order to properly set the stage for a lingering spiritual legacy that presents huge barriers to spiritual growth. The Chronicle of Jewish History by Sol Scharstein describes Yeroboam as the veteran rebel from the northern tribe of Ephraim. We need to turn to the Tanakh, however, to get a background on how this rebellion came about. In 1st Malachim, chapters nine to 11, that's First Kings, we're told about the massive building campaign undertaken by Shlomo HaMelech, the temple, his own palace, the Milo Citadel, the wall of Jerusalem, as well as fortifications to Azor, Megiddo, and Gezer, and the building of a fleet of ships at Etzion Gever. In order to do this, Shlomo HaMelech had instituted compulsory labor and levied heavy taxes upon the Israelite people, We are also told about the riches and wealth Shlomo amassed, the opulence of his kingdom, his chariots and horses, and, of course, his 700 royal wives and 300 concubines, many of whom were daughters of foreign rulers. Earlier in 1st Melachim, we are told that Hashem had specifically warned Shlomo HaMelech against increasing wives and horses. The Tanakh tells us that in his latter years these foreign wives turned the king's heart away after other gods and he became divided in his devotion to the god of his father David. Specifically, King Shlomo worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Phoenicians, and Milkom, the abomination of the Ammonites, as well as building shrines for Hamosh and Molech, who were Moabite and Ammonite gods of infant sacrifice. These stories can be found in 1st Malachim chapter 11 verses 5 to 8. Needless to say, the God of Israel was not pleased. And 1st Malachim chapter 11 verse 9 tells us that Hashem appeared to Shlomo twice to command him to forsake his errant ways. But Shlomo did not heed the divine reprimand. As a result, we are told that Hashem told Shlomo, Because you are guilty of this, you have not kept my covenant and the laws which I enjoined upon you. I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father David, I will not do it in your lifetime. I will tear it away from your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give your son one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. 1 Melachim 11-13 eleven, verses 11 to 13. This divine decree laid the groundwork for the division of the kingdom of Israel. The Tanakh account in 1st Nalachim then goes on to list the adversaries that Hashem raised up against Shlomo HaMelek during his lifetime, one of whom was Jeroboam, son of Nevath, from Zeradah. Jeroboam was of the tribe of Ephraim, and the son of a widow whose name was Zeruah. He was an able-bodied man, and a very capable worker, enlisted in the king's service in the construction projects at Milo and in Jerusalem. When Shlomo HaMelech took note of Yeroboam's obvious leadership capabilities, the king appointed him the supervisor over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph, namely the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. One day, when Yeroboam was out of Jerusalem, he was met on the road by achiah a famous prophet from Shiloh, Ahiah was wearing a new cloak. When he came upon Jeroboam, the prophet removed his cloak, tore it into twelve pieces, each piece representing a tribe of Israel, and gave ten of the pieces to Jeroboam with the following prophetic announcement. For thus said Hashem, the God of Israel, I am about to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hands, and I will give you ten tribes. But one tribe shall remain his, for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. 1 chapter 11, verses 31 to 32. The prophet goes on to describe the idol worship and disobedience that Shlomo HaMelech introduced into Israel, announcing that God would give rulership of ten tribes to Jeroboam leaving only two tribes to the descendants of Shlomo in keeping with God's promise to David that he would always have descendants on the throne and so that Jerusalem would remain the seat of sovereignty in Israel. The prophet went on to proclaim, But you, Jeroboam, have been chosen by me. Reign wherever you wish, and you shall be king over Israel. If you heed all that I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight, Keeping my laws as my servant David did, then I will be with you, and I will build for you an everlasting dynasty as I did for David. I hereby give Israel to you, and I will chastise David's descendants for that sin, but not forever. 1st chapter 11, verses 38 and 39. Some of Hazal suggest that had Jobal remained faithful to the charge that Hashem gave him, then Israel would have remained as two kingdoms, each with Hashem's blessing. We see from the last quotation in 1st Malachim 11 that it was not Hashem's intent that the chastisement of David's descendants would continue forever. Indeed, we know that Mashiach will be a descendant of David Hamelech, and he will be the king in Israel and over the entire word, world during the Messianic era. However, we are about to discover that that Yehoboam's appreciation of the opportunity afforded to him by the God of Israel was short-lived. His pride and arrogance got in the way, ultimately resulting in outright rebellion against the Torah, in mixed worship, and the complete exile of the ten tribes granted to him, an exile that has lasted for over two thousand years, and one which is so complete that the ten tribes are known as the ten lost tribes, For all intents and purposes, these ten tribes disappeared, seemingly lost forever. Although the prophets promised the return of their descendants at the time of Mashiach and the reunification with the descendants of the kingdom of Judah as one nation, one people in the land of Israel, the prophet Yehezkel was particularly explicit in this regard in Yehezkel chapter 37, verses 15 through to 28, the famous two sticks prophecy. Let's return now to 1st Melachim to follow the account of Jeroboam's ascent to sovereignty and his soon thereafter descent into idolatry. We left off the story with Ahiah's prophecy to Jeroboam that Hashem was going to chastise Shlomohamelech for his idolatry and mixed worship by removing ten tribes from the kingdom of his son and giving them to Jeroboam. As you might imagine, when Shlomo HaMelech learned of this, he was furious and promptly sought to have Yeroboam put to death. Yeroboam fled to Egypt, where he sought refuge from Pharaoh Shishak. He lived there in exile until Shlomo HaMelech's death. While in Egypt, Yeroboam was obviously influenced by Egypt's religion of multiple deities. The Chronicle of Jewish History by Sol Sharstein states that as the ambitious head of a new dynasty, Shishak was delighted at the prospect of disunity in Israel and encouraged Jeroboam to return home as soon as he heard of Solomon's death. When Shlomo died, his son Rehoboam succeeded him on the throne. The coronation of Rehoboam was set for the city of Shechem in the Shomron, the place where Joshua had divided up the land of Israel into its tribal allotments. Yehoboam returned to Israel from Egypt and when he returned, he found his countrymen chafing under the still heavy yoke of forced labor and taxes that Rehoboam's father had enforced. Jeroboam rallied the tribes behind him and went before the new king to request that the labor and taxes be lightened, in return for which they would faithfully serve him as their new king. Rehoboam was not lacking in pride or arrogance and he scoffed at the request, turning to his peers for counsel when his father's elders and advisers had recommended that the young monarch heed the request of his subjects. Rehoboam's peers encouraged him to increase the burden on his subjects, so he responded to Rehoboam with the words, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father flogged you with whips, but I will flog you with scorpions." 1st Malachim 12, verse 14 The Tanakh advises that Hashem had hardened Rehoboam's heart in order to bring about the fulfillment of Achias prophecy. When all Israel saw that the king had not listened to them, the people answered the king, We have no portion in David, no share in Jesse's son, to your tents, O Israel. Now look to your own house, O David. 1st Malachim 12, verse 16 the kingdom of Israel was rent in two. Ten tribes united behind Jeroboam ben Nevat and two behind Rehoboam ben Shlomo, with the tribe of Levi scattered between the two, but mostly in Jerusalem with Rehoboam and the temple. Rehoboam attempted to amass his troops and declare war on Jeroboam, and his rebellious subjects. But Hashem sent the prophet Shemaiah to, to Rehoboam to warn him not to go to war against his kingsmen kinsmen because the division of Israel had been brought about by Hashem. Thusly did the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel appear on the pages of history, Judah to the south and Israel to the north in the Shomron. After the division of the nation, the people in the northern kingdom still looked to Jerusalem as the center for their worship and their sacred city they continued in obedience to the Torah commandment to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, but not for long. This practice disturbed Yeroboam as he was afraid he would lose their loyalty if they continued to unite in worship with their southern kinsmen at the magnificent temple in Jerusalem. It was not long before Yeroboam came up with a solution that had very ancient roots. 1st Melachim 12 contains the sorry tale of Yeroboam's return to the sin of the Golden Calf. He had altars and shrines constructed throughout the Northern Kingdom, defying the Torah commandment that sacrifices were only to be offered at the temple, and he ordered the construction of two Golden calves and had one installed at Bethel and the other at Dan. The image on the whiteboard today is an actual photo of Yeroboam's high place, the place where his pagan altar stood where archaeologists believe that the golden calf was worshipped in the city of Dan. As if this were not enough, Jeroboam instituted a festival, a harvest festival, on the 15th day of the 8th month, in direct opposition to the festival of Sukkot on the 15th day of the 7th month, and he ordered his subjects to observe the new festival in order to prevent them from traveling to Jerusalem for Sukkot. Yeroboam instituted his own priesthood, not of the tribe of Levi. In fact, anyone who wished to could become a priest. Again, totally in open violation of the Torah. There is historical record that suggests that these priests of Yeroboam wore black robes, the exact opposite of the white robes instructed in the Torah for the Levi priests. It is interesting that this type of garment for priests has continued into modern history. Jeroboam's actions did not go without divine rebuke. When he first ascended the altar at Bethel on the occasion of the first eight-month festival of his own making, which would have been on the altar that we see in our whiteboard, according to archaeologists, God sent a prophet to, un- to denounce Yerobam's actions. The altar broke into pieces at the prophet's words, and Yehoboam, standing on the altar, stretched out his arm against the prophet with orders to have the prophet seized. When he did so, his arm paralyzed in its outright outstretched position. Yerobam panicked and pleaded with the prophet to intercede with Hashem to release his arm. The prophet did. And Hashem heard his plea, but Yeroboam's memory of the event was fleeting, and he quickly resumed his campaign to segregate and solidify his kingdom by forcing his subjects to worship Hashem in accordance with Yeroboam's traditions, which combined vestiges of Torah with the pagan customs of the religions of the neighboring nations. 1st Malachim 12 to 13 give the entire account in explicit detail. You know no other faith besides Judaism is so honest as to the weaknesses and failings of its people. The Tanakh preserves the heights and the very depths of Israel's history in detail. In time, Yeroboam's son fell ill, and he sent his wife to the now aged prophet Achiyah, seeking a cure for his son's illness. Isn't it funny how quickly man remembers his maker when his own plans bring him hardship? Ahiah sent Eoram's wife home to the king with a very harsh message. Thus said Hashem, the God of Israel, I raised you up from among the people and made you a ruler over my people Israel. I tore you away from the kingdom of the house of David. I tore away the kingdom of the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all of his heart, doing only what was right in my sight. You have acted worse than all those who preceded you. You have gone and made for yourself gods and molten images to vex me. And me you have cast behind your back. 1st Melachim, chapter 14 verses 7 to 9. The prophecy of impending judgment continues with personal implications for Jeroboam and his descendants and then it finishes with a decree of judgment on the entire northern kingdom. Hashem will strike Israel until it sways like a reed in water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have provoked Hashem by the sacred posts that they have made for themselves. He will forsake Israel because of the sins that Jeroboam committed and led Israel to commit. 1st Melachim, chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. What were those sins? What did Jeroboam commit and lead Israel to do that resulted in the entire northern kingdom being sent into exile? First there was the worship of idols. Then there was the mixing of worship practices of the nations with the Torah commanded worship of Hashem. He instituted a priesthood that was aside from the divinely ordained priesthood of the Kohanim and Levites. He created religious feast days and holidays that were not commanded in Torah. He offered sacrifices and performed worship rituals upon altars that were not the altar of Hashem in the temple in Jerusalem. Most horrific of all, eventually he allowed infant sacrifice to Hamosh and Molach. In fact, the rebellion of the Northern Kingdom was so prevalent in time that it spread south and influenced the people that were living in Judea. Meanwhile, all those subjects of the Northern Kingdom who desired to remain faithful to Hashem and His Torah fled to Judea Judea by themselves. The bottom line, the root source of Yehoboam's rebellion, spiritual arrogance and pride the false assumption that he could manipulate, amend, add to, take away from, or otherwise tamper with Hashem's commandments as they are expressed in Torah, and that he could utilize them for his own purposes and glory, as as opposed to obedience to and glorification of Hashem. How many religions in this world can we find that have been influenced by Yeroboam's legacy and in fact may be guilty of it themselves. How many religions overtly or covertly base many of their traditions, doctrines and precepts on Judaism, but they take the seed of truth and distort it, twist it, tamper with it, add to or take away from it. The Jewish, Jewish roots of these religions are twisted indeed but they have been twisted by man himself. Ever since the time of Gan Eden, man has persisted in attempts to assume authority that is simply not man's to exert. As the prophet Yirmiyahu wrote, Hashem, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in a day of trouble, to you the nations shall come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers inherited delusions, things that are futile and worthless. Can a man make gods for himself? No gods are they. Jeremiah, chapter 16 verses 19 and 20. Returning to our story and skipping ahead in Tanakh and in history despite Hashem having sent prophet after prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel and to the kingdom of Judea which later followed in the ways of their northern brethren the people continued in their errant ways. Second Malachim, chapter seventeen, contains a heartbreaking account of Hashem's repeated attempts to warn his divided nation of the dangers of persisting in their rebellion, and of the exile which would result. The middle section of the chapter records the details of the invasion of King Shalmaneser of Assyria, who repeatedly attacked, captured, and carried off the ten tribes of the northern kingdom between seven thirty four BCE and 721 BCE when the northern kingdom fell completely to Shalmaneser's successor, King Sargon of Assyria. The ten tribes were carried off into the various countries of the Assyrian Empire and disappeared. Only a small minority were recorded as making their way to Babylon to join their Jewish kinsmen when Jews returned from their own exile in Babylon which began almost 200 years later and lasted nearly 70 years before the first exiles actually returned to Eretz Israel, The whereabouts of the descendants of the lost ten tribes has been a mystery that has survived for centuries. Some say they are lost forever. Some say they are beyond the mystical river, river Sambation, which is in the area of the Caucasian Mountains near Romania. Others say they are in the east, in Burma, Afghanistan, India, and diverse locations. Still more say they migrated north and then east into Eastern Europe, then into Western Europe, then into Britain and her colonies, and over to North America. Only Hashem knows for certain, for He has promised that not one of these descendants will be lost, and He will return all the descendants of the lost ten tribes and the exiles of Judah to Eretz Israel at the time of Mashiach and the Redemption. Amazingly, today there are hundreds of thousands of people scattered in all these areas of the world who are now claiming that they believe they are the descendants of the Lost Ten Tribes. Whether they are or are not remains to be proven. What is certain is that Hashem has awakened them spiritually to repent from mixed worship and idolatry, the legacy of Yerubim, and to turn towards the Torah for truth and guidance. These masses of people are at all different stages of spiritual evolution and many, upon hearing the truth of the seven universal Torah laws, find that life as a B'nai Noach is the answer to their quest for spiritual identity and a Torah-based lifestyle. Others decide to convert to Judaism, believing that their soul root is among the children of Israel and that they must rejoin their people. Still others decide to remain aloof and separate, neither B'nai Noach nor Am Yisrael, the people of Israel as they're defined today, namely the Jewish people. These individuals claim, that, claim to have a deep conviction within them that they are descended from the Lost Ten Tribes, but they do not want to reunite with Judah through conversion. They feel that they are to remain a separate but related entity, which flies a bit in the face of the prophecies of the prophets which declare that when Hashem does return the exiles and reunite his people, they will be brought together as a single nation. Reading from Yehazkel 37, verses 20 to 23, the prophet Yehazkel wrote, I am going to take the Israelite people from among the nations they have gone to and gather them from every quarter and bring them to their own land. I will make them a single nation in the land on the hills of Israel and one king shall be king of them all. Never again shall they be two nations, and never again shall they be divided into two kingdoms. Nor shall they ever again defile themselves by their fetishes and their abhorrent things, and by their other transgressions. I will save them in all their settlements where they sinned, and I will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Before we go further, I would like to return to 2nd Malachim 17 and read to you the summary passage of historical evidence that closes the chapter and clearly defines the legacy of Jeroboam, that, if we're honest, we have to admit has survived to this day. Reading from 2nd Malachim chapter 17 They worshipped Hashem, but they also appointed from their own ranks priests of the shrines who officiated for them in the cult places they worshipped Hashem while serving their own gods according to the practices of the nations from which they had been deported to this day they follow their former practices they do not worship Hashem properly they do not follow the laws and practices the teaching and instruction that Hashem enjoined upon the descendants of Jacob who was given the name Israel With whom he made a covenant and whom he commanded, You shall worship no other gods. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. You must worship only Hashem your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great might and with an outstretched arm. To him alone shall you bow down, and to him alone shall you sacrifice. You shall observe faithfully all your days the laws and the practices, the teaching and instruction that I wrote down for you. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant that I made with you. Do not worship other gods. Worship only Hashem your God and he will save you from the hands of all your enemies. But they did not obey. They continued in their former practices. Those nations worshiped Hashem, but they also served their idols. To this day, their children and their children's children do as their ancestors did. 2nd Malachim, chapter 17, verses 32 to 41. As we can see, what the prophet has described is not far off what we have witnessed with the passage of time in history, even till today. O Hashem, my strength, my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, To you the nations shall come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers inherited utter delusions, things that are futile and worthless. Can a man make gods for himself? No gods are they. Yirmiyahu 16, verses 19-20 to Can it be any clearer? Mankind continues to this day to defy Hashem's Torah and His will man continues to insist that he knows better than his Creator what is the right way, the proper way to govern himself and to worship God. Torah offers an all-encompassing way of life for both Israel and the nations. Man insists on ignoring, refuting and denigrating Torah and creating man-made religions instead. Why? It all boils down to spiritual arrogance and pride. We are not born into this world with tainted souls, as some religions teach. We come into this world with a pure soul, the power of free choice, which, by the way, does make us uniquely in the image of Hashem as compared to the other species, and we have the ability to choose between our inclinations towards good and towards evil. We alone choose how we tip the scales. Hashem has set down two ways to approach and serve him. One for all of mankind, the universal Torah laws, the seven commandments that expand to so many more that the non-Jew can actually live a life almost parallel to that of a Torah-observant Jew and refine the world in the process. The second being the explicit and detailed observance of the 613 commandments of Torah, which also contain the seven universal laws, which enable the children of Israel, these 613 commandments in the Torah, to reveal Hashem's presence in this world, and to function as His witnesses and as a light to the nations. As is abundantly clear from the passage I just read from Second Malachim chapter 17, Hashem does not condone mixing Torah commandments with the worship traditions of other religions or with the worship traditions that man concocts for himself. This entire passage reputedly rebukes Israel for having intermingled the two. What we need is the awe and the respect. The temple set forth very clearly that there was a distance that was to be maintained. If you examine the traditions, if you examine the mitzvot, if you examine the design of the temple, I mean remember this. Shlomo or David cried out when he wanted to build the Beit HaMikdash, You know he cried out to Hashem, you know, what, what could possibly house you? What could contain you? we know that hashem cannot be contained in a house of wood of stone and yet the amazing thing is is that hashem contracted himself and brought down his presence his shchina his essence into a, a form to a level that it could be present in the Aron ha- in the excuse me the fast is getting to me in the Kodesha kodashim within the in the holy of holies that Hashem's presence could abide there, as long as Israel was keeping his Torah, as long as we were keeping the mitzvot, until it came to a point in time when Hashem had to remove his presence. But at every stage, there was always distance that was to be maintained. There was a sense of of awe and respect. We have to remember as well what happened to, for example, the sons of Aaron, when they offered Nadab and Avichu, when they offered unauthorized fire, unauthorized incense, they were keeping a Torah command, but it was a command that was for their father as the kohen HaKadol. It was not for them. And they stepped, they didn't maintain the distance, they didn't maintain the respect, and so there was judgment that fell upon them. We see with the arrow bomb, he went totally outside, totally in contradiction to the laws of the Torah and mixed pagan religions in with the worship of Hashem and that tradition that tendency, that influence has continued all the way through since that point in time we see it in many of the modern religions today there needs to be awe and respect Yerat Shemayim, the fear of heaven which Rabbi Nachman teaches is an aspect of the messianic spirit. We must always remember that Hashem is the potter. We are, as the prophets explain, the clay vessels being molded by the potter's hand. Too often we think we're finished vessels and we remove ourselves from the potter's wheel. When we do this, it is not long before we find ourselves falling and smashing into pieces a process which Hashem allows in order that He can pick up the broken pieces, soften the hardened clay of our hearts, and refashion us into vessels that He can once again use. We have to remember that Yerbom ben Nevat was a vessel of Hashem's choosing. He was only in the very early stages of formation when his pride and arrogance hardened his heart, dulled his hearing, clouded his vision, and propelled him on to make decisions and decrees that ran contrary to the sacred trust of the Torah and the responsibility God had honored him with. His decisions impacted an entire nation, and that nation in exile influenced others. So, too, our lives impact others. No one lives in a void. All of creation is woven together according to God's design, and, as we saw when we studied Hashka Ha-Pratis, Whatever Hashem does in anyone's life depends first upon the ultimate good for all humanity and creation, not solely on our individual situation. Each and every human being has been given the unique responsibility of fulfilling the potential they were born with by seeking to draw close to Hashem and to fulfill whatever role, small or great, Hashem has for them in this world. And we each have our own specific role to play. It might be something that is a moment in length. It might be something that takes a lifetime. But we each were brought into this world with the potential to fulfill a very unique and specific role that only we can truly fulfill. We can only do this when we acknowledge when we acknowledge the fact that we need to submit to the Torah, when we acknowledge the authority that Hashem has and the authority that he's invested in the Kohanim, and when the Temple stood within the Levites, and today within the rabbis who have the responsibility of teaching us and instructing us in the Torah, and as well in terms of the Sheva Mitzvot. Now, just give me a second here got a little, here we go, I've got a little bit of a change that I want to bring in to read you something. And I've got some things turned around. Just take a look at this to find what I want to bring to you. Okay. We spoke about Nedab and Avihu. And we mentioned how when they brought the unauthorized incense offerings there was judgment that fell and we noted that they were not mixing other religions they were simply taking a Torah commandment that had been given solely to the high priest they adapted it to their own desire to worship Hashem their way Hashem has told us what is good how sad it is that man perpetually thinks we know what is good better than he who is the source of all good Just as the ten tribes were swallowed up among the nations, we find that Yeroboam's legacy of spiritual pride and spiritual mixtures has spread throughout the nations and throughout the centuries. It limits spiritual growth. It limits our potential because it distances man from our God and it causes a person to transgress Hashem's commandment to serve Him in accordance with His Torah and to worship Him only. Paradoxically, many of these same individuals feel totally confident in their knowledge of Hashem. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov taught that when one feels certain that they know God, they are usually farther away from knowing Him than they realize. In L'Kute Halachot, Rabbi Nachman explained, Someone who thinks he has already achieved closeness to God is necessarily far away from the truth. This mistake has been the cause of all the disasters which have befallen the Jewish people. Never was Israel closer to our Father in heaven than when the holy temple was standing. The temple was the pinnacle of perfection. It was the place for all closeness to God. In the first temple stood the Ark of the Covenant and the tablets of stone, even so, those who had the privilege of standing in the holy temple had to realize their own distance from God and from the holiness of this awesome place. Indeed, the very root of their joy was their confidence that God brings even the most distant closer to him. The very temple itself, what was it? Behold, the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. First Kings 8, verse 27 Still, God brought himself down, He contracted himself as it were and caused his presence to dwell in the Holy Temple. It was out of compassion alone that God gave the command that physical animals should be brought as offerings for a sweet savor. But the people of the time made a mockery of all this. They thought that they had already achieved the ultimate good and that they had drawn close through their own endeavors. Their hearts became high, therefore they have forgotten me. Hosea 13 verse 6 this is what caused the destruction of the Holy Temple." End of quote. Rabbi Nachman explained that one can only draw close to God through knowing his or her distance. However close one becomes, one must always remember this distance, not that it should be a reason for him to stay far away. The whole purpose is that this knowledge should help him to draw close. Spiritual Pride inflates our egos and deflates our capacity to learn. Our egos occupy valuable space that could be filled with Torah and dull our senses so that our spiritual vision becomes clouded. Our perception and our hearing becomes dulled. We limit ourselves to the realm of physicality, instead of elevating matters to spiritual realms. We must always remember that Hashem has told us that His ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are His ways above our ways. The Prophets told us that our vision has become veiled and our hearing dulled, because of our unwillingness to submit to His guidelines for righteous living our stiff-necked and willful insistence that we know better than our Creator how the physical and spiritual worlds were made to function. The prophet Isaiah wrote, None but Hashem of hosts shall you account holy. Give reverence to Him alone. Hold Him alone in awe. Nishio 8 verse 13 Isaiah also recorded Hishem's instruction to Israel, which also can apply to anyone from the nations who seeks to serve the one true God. Listen to me, you who pursue justice, you who seek Hashem. Look to the rock you were hewn from, to the core you were dug from. Look back to Avraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, who brought you forth. He was only one when I called him, but I blessed him and made him many. That's found in Yeshua 51, verses 1 to 2. Remember that Avraham was the father of true monotheism. He and Sarah made thousands of converts from pagan theologies to true faith in the creator of the universe. Avraham was a Hebrew, one who passed over. He was not a Jew, although he did become the father, the grandfather, to the Jewish people. He lived in accordance with the seven universal Torah laws and taught them to all who would heed his call to believe in the one true God. He merited to be called Hashem's friend. The last ten tribes mixed Torah with other religions. They created their own form of religion. God responded by scattering them throughout the nations of the world. Their descendants, much assimilated and watered down, are out there somewhere, completely intermingled among the nations with the exceptions of a few small, now identifiable tribal groups in Asia. The ten tribes were swallowed up, as the prophet Hosea declared. Pagan religions and idolatry existed before the flood and renewed themselves after the flood. But it was only the ten tribes of Israel, beginning with Jeroboam, who led the way in mixing worship of Hashem with the traditions of other religions, a mixture clearly unacceptable to God. Think of what happened to Aaron's sons. God did not leave us helpless or ignorant of his will. He gave us his Torah. The oral Torah tells us that Hashem offered Torah to all the nations of the world but only Israel accepted it, responding we will do and we will hear. Now, the sages teach us that what we will do and we will hear means is that Israel committed to obey the Torah commandments even when they didn't totally understand them. In fact, we are taught that understanding comes with faithful observance of the commandments. There are some commandments which are whole their They're statutes, such as the red heifer. And they will always remain mysteries. We don't know why we need to do them, but we know that we must. In other words, we must keep the commandments first and foremost, even if we may not fully understand the rationale. The understanding will come if we're faithful in our observance. Still, as Rabbis Heim, Klorfin and Yaakov Rogalski wrote in The Path of the Righteous Gentile, When God gave the Torah to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai, the people all accepted the written Torah willingly. But God had to lift the mountain over their heads and threaten to drop it on them to persuade them to accept the oral Torah. This comes from the Babylonian Talmud, Shabbat 88a. That is, it is the rabbinic interpretation of the Hebrew Scriptures. If the Jews had difficulty in accepting the oral Torah, how much more so must it be for the non-Jews? But accept the rabbis they must, for the source of understanding the seven Noahide commandments is found in the Talmud and the later rabbinic teachings and nowhere else. So we see that these legacies of Yeroboam were far reaching. They have influenced religions from that point in history on. And we need in these days to become more aware of the fact that spiritual mixtures are not pleasing to Hashem. And we find over and over again, even in that passage from 2nd Malachim, chapter 17, when I read the closing passage, over and over again was repeated, you shall have no other gods. You shall have no other gods. Obey my commandments. So many times within the Torah we are told to keep Hashem's commandments. He's given us the guidebook. A guidebook for the nations and a guidebook for Israel in our role as teachers and as a light to the nations. Those two roles, as we discussed in an earlier class, are mutually beneficial. They are related to one another in that When Israel teaches, keeps the commandments, keeps the 613 commandments, and teaches the Sheva Mitzvot, we reveal God's presence in the world. When a B'nai Noach, when when B'nai Noach keep the Sheva Mitzvot and grow in their understanding of just how far reaching these are, they refine the world. When the world is refined, God's presence is revealed. And the revelation of God's presence refines the world. Israel and the nations are meant to work together. Israel was not set apart as God's chosen nation because we were better or bigger or stronger. In fact, he chose us at a time when we were the least of all nations. But he gave us a specific role, and he has used the ups and downs of our life to reveal God's presence in this world. And he will continue to do so until eternity. So we need to realize that the nations in Israel were created to be mutually beneficial to one another, that there are two ways that are set down in the Torah for us to approach Hashem, each in our own unique way, each according to the path that he has set before us. Please God that the nations in these days will continue to begin to understand the Sheva Mitzvot. I have that prayer as well for my own people, because one of the most difficult things that we're finding is in teaching the Sheva Mitzvot, we also have to explain to so many of our own people our responsibility to be a light to the nations, and exactly what the Sheva Mitzvot mean and how expansive they are, because there's been... 2000 years when Jews have not taught the Sheva Mitzvot and as a result amongst the nations and even amongst Jews as well they've become something that's become obscure but now is the time when Hashem is bringing them forward, he's bringing them up into the public eye, he's quickening hundreds of thousands of people among the nations. And so it's a time when we need to see what the hand of God is doing. Now I see that there's questions coming in, so I'll just pause for a moment to get your comments. Uh, Cornelius, yours didn't come up, if you want to try to put it back on again. Um, I apologize if the class was a little muddled today. Um, The fast, going without food and water throughout the day is... uh, makes me a little dry in the throat and a little fuzzy in the brain, so I do apologize. Uh, Azraeli, did you have a comment? Are there any questions? What I hope to show you is that even in the example of something that um, is a part of Jewish history that we're not pleased or proud of, as in the idolatry and the mixing of worship, Hashem has used that, He uses everything in the Torah, every account that's been preserved there, is to teach us something. And if we look around in today's world, we can see that we can usually find signs of it in today's world as well. Azraelah asks, can we say that Israel is always punished by a collective punishment? So, if it is the case, what's the average of good people in order not to be condemned? Um, it's it's not always we each are accountable before Hashem. Israel as a nation, um, when when we reach a certain stage, which is totally Hashem's call, uh, yes, there has been collective judgment as in the exile of the northern kingdom, the exile of the southern kingdom. Each one of those was a collective judgment because the people as a whole, had reached a stage where the only way to bring them back was to, to impose um, punishment, discipline. What is the average? What's the ratio? That we don't know. Uh, it's, remember, Hashem looks at the whole of history. And He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what we're going to do and what choices we're going to make. So in His own way that, that you know, we can't understand and then only Hashem can do Hashem works all of our right choices and wrong choices together and has history play out to the ultimate end that he has decreed Ezra um, is really asking the average of bad people being good. again each one of us is, ac- is accountable for our own actions the choices that we make individually, we must do tshuva for, we must make uh, restitution for. We're responsible for our own sins before Hashem. Collectively, as a people, it's not just Israel that gets judged. The nations will be judged as well. And that's very clear in the Tanakh that, you know, all the nations, Israel and the nations, were judged when we reach a certain level or stage of rebellion or impurity uh, that Hashem simply says is enough what those averages are it's totally up to Hashem um, ok Corney, thank you for your comment it's, uh, it's encouraging are there any other I see you're both right ok Azraelis says yes but during the destruction of the temple some innocent and wise people were killed that is why I asked the Torah always says because of the impurity of the priests etc so do we pray for that (laughs) yes Um, uh, we don't know why it is um, that innocent and righteous people die it happens (laughs) you know uh, an innocent Jewish woman was killed today by a katusha missile that hit Nariah you know she hadn't done anything Hashem knows the point at which our souls will be returned to him. He is appointed the day, he knows the day, and how he works that out is is beyond our understanding. We are here in this world for a specific purpose. We are here to do a tikkun, a correction, a rectification in our souls. And when we reach that stage of rectification, then some point, Sometimes people just uh, die unexplainably, they die early, they, or they something happens and they die and they're young and we don't understand why. We can only accept that whatever the purpose was of their neshama being here upon the earth, that that time had, had come and Hashem had decreed that that was a point in time that, that their neshama should be returned. Why it has to be innocent people versus why only evil people die—that we don't know. But we do know that while it might seem that evil people get away with things in this world, we're told in Tehillim very clearly that while it might seem that the evil are flourishing in this world, that their um, their punishment will come in the world to come. Hashem is merciful. Remember, He's 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 totally a uh, loving and merciful God and in his Rahmanas, in his compassion, he allows the wicked of this world to um, have pleasure in this life because at the point in which uh, their evil actions uh, receive their judgment, uh, it's a very long time, eternity. Uh, Azraeli, you're putting in another question. Uh, why was it so important to build a temple for Hashem? <laughs> Hashem says He had chosen Har Moriah uh, as the place in which He would would position His name, His presence. And in Kab- in Kabbalah, we know that there's uh, there's significance to that particular place. That the Evan Shatiyah, the foundation stone, the the stone upon which Yitzhak was offered uh, to Hashem, the stone upon upon which Yaakov laid his head. That that stone has Special significance and that there's in Kabbalah we understand that that is the connection point between the the Yerushalayim above and the Yerushalayim below and that the flow of Shefa, the flow of abundance from the heavenlies flows to the earth through that point so it's a very important place Hashem chose that place and he chose to have man build him to have Israel build him a temple a place where his presence could be centered, where the people, even the nations of the world, could come, will come in the future to worship him. We you know that Hashem is everywhere, but his Shekhinah, the place where we focus our attention on him, it needs a focal point. We're finite. We're not infinite like he is. When Israel was in the wilderness, remember, he He had them build the the tabernacle. And his presence dwelled in the holy of holies of the tabernacle as they traveled, so that the people could focus upon the temple and at the tabernacle, where his presence abided. And It also gave them a place to bring the sacrifices to, because remember, before that, people were giving sacrifices. I mean, sacrifices started, you know, at the time of of Cain and uh, and You know, Noah made sacrifices to Hashem, as did Abraham. But the sacrifices were essentially made in the field. They were made where the people felt to offer them. And once Hashem brought Israel out of Mitzrayim, out of Egypt, he commanded that no more would Israel offer sacrifices wherever they chose. That sacrifices to him could only be brought to his altar in the place where he would cause his presence to dwell. When they were in the wilderness, that was the tabernacle. But once they came into the land of Israel, his presence was established upon Har Moriah. So, Har Habait. So, you know, again, I'm not an authority in temple matters, but we do know that Hashem. In providing us with the temple and instructing Israel to travel to the temple three times a year for the the feast of Pesach Shavuot and Sukkot that he was helping us to to focus our attention on him in a very tangible way the temple you must remember when it stood was the center it was the absolute center of Jewish life everything revolved around the temple you know, just as everything in our life is to revolve around Hashem. So it's you know a finite manifestation of spiritual realities. Everything in the design of the temple has a lesson of tremendous significance spiritually that you know the Hashem in the Messianic era when we learn actually the Prophet Yehezkel wrote that when the house of Israel would study the design of the temple, that you know, at that point Hashem would set things in motion to begin the process for the the reestablishment of the temple on Har and for the rebuilding of the temple. And in fact, the book that corny's referring to uh, on the on the whiteboard, uh, Rabbi Chaim Clorfin has just released. It was five years it took him to write it. A book called The Messianic Temple. The third temple is to be the house of prayer for all nations, as the prophet Isaiah foretold, and Everything about its design teaches us a lesson. It tells us about the Messianic era, it tells us about Hashem, it tells us about ourselves. And just as the, you know, the design, all of this is incorporated in the design of the temple. So in essence, the temple is a place where Hashem chose to place his presence, that it would be the center of worship for Israel and God willing for the nations in the years to come. And a place that would help us, being human, being finite, with proper instruction, to begin to understand more of the the revelation and the reality of God. Okay, we're after our time frame. Is there anything else before I uh, close it down today, Azrael? I hope I gave you a decent enough answer. I'm again, I'm not an authority on the temple, um, but I would I would suggest that you go to the website. Uh, for the Temple Institute, www.thetempleinstitute.com and there's wonderful material there uh, that explains all about the purpose and the role of the Temple in the life of Israel and the nations. Cornelius, uh, there's something else coming up. Again, I apologize if today's class was uh, was a little... Uh, Little incoherent in places. (laughs) Let's just say that uh, Baruch Hashem, we've made it through the fast days, still a couple of hours to go. Um, But uh, again, Cornelis, you weren't in the class when we began. I don't know if you know or not, but seven Hattusha missiles hit Svat this afternoon. There have been 20 people injured. It even hit a bomb shelter. And uh, these are certainly days when we would appreciate your prayers. For the safety of our soldiers, uh, for the safety of our civilians, because uh, it's not always reported in the mainstream media, but the there are definitely increases in the terror attacks. Uh, as I mentioned at the start of the show or the start of the class, we're now on a level three alert, which is one level below uh, state of emergency. So definitely, the the prayers of B'nai Noach and the righteous among the nations are most appreciated. Uh, that Hashem will protect His people and that uh, His purposes will be, uh, will be revealed in all this. Okay, um, next week's class will be the final Shuhu class until the fall. Uh, Bali Nader, we will discuss uh, resisting authority, a human condition with spiritual consequences. We'll talk about how we can limit our capacity for revelation, which is something we don't want to do. We'll talk about learning, how do we learn from the example of Moshe Rabbeinu. There's a lot to learn there. And we'll talk about uh, Rabbi Nachman's teaching, that before every ascent spiritually, there's always a descent. And we'll explore some other things uh, that I'm sure that will fill in to make our last class interesting. Uh, I'll be going to North America, God willing, the end of July. We'll be in North America for a month. So that is the reason why the classes will be suspended for a while. So I hope that uh, we'll see you in next week's class. And have a wonderful, wonderful week. Goodbye, everyone.